I'm Samantha Cole, host of the new season of Understood, The Pornhub Empire. Over the course of four episodes, I'll tell you how a horny YouTube knockoff in Canada came to dominate the porn world, only to shatter their cheeky reputation in a massive scandal. The Pornhub Empire is a new season of Understood from the CBC. Available now wherever you get your podcasts. Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African-Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? President Biden's administration is making major decisions, and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval, and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African-Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African-Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy. The views expressed in the following program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of Saga 960 AM or its management. Seeking truth and justice in a battleground of deception and corruption, this is The Richard Serrett Show. I want all of you to get up out of your chairs. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell, I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! We must not allow ourselves to be intimidated. Our task is not only to win the battle, but to win the war. Meaning we're not in Kansas anymore. Take a look at this country through her eyes if you really want to see something. You'll see the whole parade of what man's carved out for himself after centuries of fighting. You're out of order! You're out of order! The whole trial is out of order! You have meddled with the primal forces of nature! And you Hey there, I am your Matt Prophet of the Airwaves, and welcome to Radio Free Canada, news, notes, and opinions from the underground for Monday, August the 15th in the year of our Lord 2022. It's just you and me, Jacob. That's it. We're holding down the fort. Declan is away on holidays. One of my twin boys left for camp on Sunday. North. He's off to Montreal. He'll be gone for a week. So basically, that's one half of my IT department. While he's off enjoying swimming and archering and whatever else they do at summer camp these days, I have to upload my own podcasts. It's horrible. The horror. The horror. I know. It's not pretty. I wonder if they still make wallets at summer camp. Did you go to summer camp as a, as a kid, Jacob? Did you used to make wallets? In arts and crafts? No, no, not at all. All right. That was a thing. I would have horrible at it if we did. <laughs> you and me both, brother. I had a friend who went to asthma camp and they did, you know, they did archery and they did, they had, you know, the, the camp, they had a, an official song for asthma camp and, and they made wallets every, every summer he'd bring home a new wallet. I didn't go to summer camp. 
but my entire family, I mean, we, we went camping, but I didn't go to a, you know, like a YMCA camp, but we went camping for two or three weeks every year. Seven of us. Imagine Jacob, seven of us, two parents, five kids. Uh, we would, um, in a, we, we'd be crammed into, uh, we had a 1962 Valiant station wagon, and then that would be hauling. Uh, my dad and my uncle made a, uh, a tent trailer, a homemade tent trailer. And then we'd head north, all seven of us, and we'd hit every provincial park around Lake Superior. And my mother, God bless her, my mother was the navigator. Now, this is 40 years before GPS, 45, 50 years before GPS and Google Maps. So she sat in the front seat next to my dad with a brewer's retail map spread out across the dashboard. That's right. We use maps. And um, we would sit around the campfire and we'd make popcorn and roast marshmallows and, and we swam and we fished and we hiked. My Lord, five kids in a small tent trailer, my parents especially my mother, had the patience of a saint. That's why they're the greatest generation, truly. Uh, you know, it's been a while since we've heard from cackling Kamala Harris, the singularly least qualified person to ever occupy the office of vice president of the United States. Actually, she's unqualified to be a cashier at Food Basics. I mean, that would be, that's insulting to the fine cashiers at Food Basics. And um, I love to play her audio on the program. In fact, I should put all of her audio together and make a greatest hits album. Now here she is stringing together a bunch of meaningless, empty sentences, which is what she does. I think she's talking about space exploration, but it's hard to say. We know that we really are quite behind in terms of maximizing our collective understanding about how we will engage on the technology of today and what we can quickly and easily predict will be the technology over the next decades. Mm. So to maintain our position as the United States of America on this issue, it is critical that we work together Mm. to understand where we are, Mm -hmm. to recognize and have the courage to speak truth about what is obsolete. Amen. And then to partner Mm -hmm. to ensure that we are speaking the same language Mm -hmm. with the same motivation Mm -hmm inspired by the opportunity of it all, Mm. but then doing the work Mm. of updating Mm -hmm. how we've been talking and thinking about our exploration in space. (laughs) Yes, yes. Brilliant. Author, author. Together, collectively, all of us together, working together with stakeholders and our partners must come together to tackle the issues that we face today and tomorrow as one. Because as one together, we can confront the issues that confront us together. This this speech makes the Gettysburg Address or MLK's I Have a Dream sound like a big piece of crap, doesn't it? But it gets better. Uh, Here's the cackling hyena talking about equity equity right this is the new religion of the left it's part of their holy trinity equity diversity and inclusiveness that's the new holy trinity listen to the flawed reasoning here so when we talk about equality well that's a good goal but let us not presume that because everyone should be treated equal that they start out on equal footing So equity, as a concept, says, recognize 
that everyone has the same capacity, but in order for them to have equal opportunity to reach that capacity, well, we must pay attention to this issue of equity if we are to expect and allow people to compete on equal footing. You see, this is a perfect illustration of how the left, how the radical, woke, progressive left fail to understand basic human nature. And this is why socialism always fails. This is why the policies of the left are so damaging, because they're rooted in nonsense instead of common sense. Equality and equity are not the same. She was using them interchangeably. Equity, as a concept says, these are her words, equity as a concept says, recognize that everyone has the same capacity. Everyone has the same capacity. Stop. Stop right there. Everyone has the same capacity. That's it. There's the rub. The left actually subscribes to this faulty logic that everyone has the same capacity. And therefore, in order to ensure equity, in other words, the goal is not equality of opportunity, which is important, which is something we should strive for and hope to achieve. But that's not the goal. The goal of the left is equality of outcomes. So the goal should be to make sure everyone has an opportunity to enter the race. I think we all understand that. The race of life. The goal of the left, however, is to interfere in the actual race in order to make sure certain groups get to win the race. This has nothing to do with equality. Capacity. We're not equal as individuals. We don't have equality of capacity. We don't have the same capacity. I don't have the capacity to play professional tennis. I don't have the capacity to become a a mathematician. Individuals are individuals because they have different capacities. But according to Kamala Harris... Society should make steps, take steps to make sure I can become a mathematician or a professional tennis player. And if that means lowering standards to meet my diminished capacity, then so be it. That's equity in a nutshell. In a nutshell, indeed. Emphasis on the nut. That's why it's dangerous. In other words, if a woman wants to become a firefighter, And she can't meet the minimum physical requirements, let's say, I don't know, carrying a 150 pound person on her back down a fireman or down a fireman's ladder. That's what they call the fireman carry, right? If she can't do that, then we should lower the standards in order to ensure that particular woman can become a firefighter. That's equity. That's the left's religion. It's not equality. There are three kinds of equality, all vitally important. Equality of opportunity. Everyone gets to run in the race, but because they have unequal capacity, not everyone will finish first, second, or third. That's just human nature. Equality before the law. And let's face it, we have some work to do in this area. And equality before God. We're all God's children. He loves us all equally. That's it. The rest is supercilious nonsense. And it would be fine if it were only supercilious nonsense, but it's also a destructive and toxic idea. Equity. We're not equal when it comes to capacity. 
I will never be a power forward in the NBA. I know you're shocked, Jacob. I know you're shocked. I will never be an astronaut. I don't have the capacity. So in Vancouver, there's a job posting for lifeguards. Only they're demanding that applicants be fully vaccinated and committed to decolonization. The job posting says the city of Vancouver seeks colleagues who can help shape and embody our core commitments to sustainability, decolonization, equity, and understanding quality of life for all residents. At the city of Vancouver, we're committed to recruiting a diverse workforce that represents the community we are so proudly serving. Indigenous applicants, people of color, all genders, LGBTQ2, uh, 2Q+, and persons with disabilities are encouraged to apply. People with disabilities are encouraged to apply for the position of lifeguard. If you're drowning, do you care if the person who is supposed to save your life, pull you out of the water, is two-spirited, renounces colonialism? Would you feel okay if that lifeguard has a disability? A lifeguard should be hired on the basis of merit and merit alone. Are they a strong swimmer? Are they physically fit? Could they pull two drowning children out of the pool at the same time if it came to it? This is equity. It's dangerous. It will be our civilization's ruin. All right. uh, Coming up on today's program, a lot of great stuff, but let me tell you what's coming up next. The um, secondstreet.org think tank, secondstreet.org has just gathered some data. And uh, the data shows there is a spike in the number of patients in Ontario that died while waiting for surgery, CT scans and MRI scans in 21-22. Colin Craig is president of secondstreet.org and he's next. Stay with us. The Richard Serrett Show, off and running for Monday, August the 15th. Facta non verba. We're back as the Richard Serrett Show continues on News Talk, Saga 960 AM. Welcome back. Second Street Org is a think tank, and today they released some uh, rather disturbing data from Ontario Health that shows there is a spike in the number of patients who died while waiting for surgery, CT scans, and MRI scans in uh, 21, 2021, 2022. And uh, Colin Craig is president of secondstreet.org. He joins us now. Hey, Colin, how are you? Good. Yourself, Richard? I'm well, thank you. So when we say a spike, uh, sort of help us unpack this. What, what, uh, what are we looking at here in terms of the data? Well, over the past several years, the number of patients in Ontario who died while waiting for surgery, uh, CT scans and MRI scans, it's increased substantially. Uh, You know, in the case of MRI scans, it's increased about 400 percent over the last six years. In the case of CT scans, it's it's nearly doubled. Uh, And then when it comes to surgeries, we've seen a, a significant increase, too. So the problem is we don't know what procedures or, or, or what the cause was of why these patients were waiting. Uh, so Ontario Health won't break down the numbers, whereas in other provinces, we can see, OK, this many were waiting for cataract surgery. This is how long the patients were waiting for hip surgery. This is how many were waiting for heart surgery, cancer treatment and so forth. So it, uh, you know, we can tell from media reports and even some patients that we've spoken to that there certainly are some of these patients who would have died for things while waiting for things like heart operations. 
Uh, we just don't know how many. And uh, we're certainly encouraging Ontario Health to get to the bottom of this, calculate the numbers and release them to the public. So uh, just so I'm clear, uh, if someone is, is it dies while they're waiting for a CT scan or an MRI scan, that doesn't necessarily um, mean that, you know, had they gotten that CT scan or MRI scan, things would have turned out differently. Um, or, or does it? I mean, how do we determine how many people actually died as a result of these delay delays? You're right. It depends really on why they need those scans. Do they need the scans to identify where a tumor is so that they can go after, uh, you know, cancer that's in a patient's body? Or is it in the case of, you know, maybe someone's uh, dislocated their shoulder and they're, uh, you know, recovering from getting it back into place. They want to just make sure the shoulder's recovering. You can get MRI and CT scans for a variety of different reasons. Again, the real, the real problem here is that Ontario Health just isn't releasing the data. On one hand, they tell us, oh, it's confidential patient information. On the other hand, they tell us, well, uh, we can't release it because we don't have it. Either way, it's it's not very accountable. And, you know, to give your listeners uh, a, a good comparison, in Nova Scotia, they are able to release all the data to us. Alberta does the same thing. Uh, even some hospitals in Ontario will release the data. So uh, we certainly don't believe the argument that it's a confidential patient information. And to be clear, we're not asking for patient names. We certainly want patients' confidential information to stay confidential. But there's no reason why Ontario Health can't release the numbers. And, uh, you know, to go back to Nova Scotia, they're able to dissect their data and say, okay, there are 367 patients that died last year while waiting for surgery. And of those, 51 of them were waiting for surgeries like heart procedures that could have potentially saved their lives. And so we think it's important for governments to be able to do that, to figure out where the problem areas are and uh, ideally work towards addressing it. But with Ontario Health, it, they just seem to be throwing their arms up in the air and uh, you know, it's either they don't have the information or they don't want to disclose it. It's one of the two. Well, I guess I'll ask you to speculate a little bit here. I mean, what is your sense? Do you think Ontario Health has this kind of information and they they simply are refusing to release it? Why would other why would certain hospitals have this type of information? Why would Nova Scotia have this and Ontario Health not have it? That's a very good question. Um, I, I really don't know. I mean, I would hope that they would have it and that they're analyzing this data to understand why they're seeing an increase in patients dying on waiting lists. I mean, for goodness sakes, uh, the government maintains a monopoly on health care right across the, ca- the country uh, uh, for that matter. But um, if you're going to do that, then you have a responsibility, I would say, to investigate patient deaths on waiting lists and figure out how many of those lives could have potentially been saved. And once you do that, that should certainly be reported to the public to note each year how many patients' lives the government's healthcare system is, is costing people. I would certainly hope, too, that any politician responsible for operating a healthcare system would also be asking that question and also be able to answer that question to the public just how often this happens. We know that the University Health Network in Ontario noted uh, it was in 2020 that there were upwards of 35 patients lives who could have been saved, but it took too long to get them the the heart procedures that they needed. So, you know, it's not a question of if anyone is dying, it's a question of how many. We spoke with a former retired uh, nurse from Ontario, from uh, just east of Toronto, and she told us about uh, losing her daughter. Her daughter, Shannon, was um, 
uh, suffering with a, a heart problem. Uh, it could have been uh, treated, but they didn't get her the treatment in time. And so sadly, she passed away. So oh, I'm, uh, pardon the interruption. I got to jump in here. If you could just hold on for a few minutes, I'd like to come back and talk to you some more. Sure. All right. Colin Craig, president of secondstreet.org, a think tank. We're talking about uh, new Ontario health data showing a spike in the number of patients that died while waiting for surgery, CT scans and MRI scans right here in the province. Back with more of our conversation right after these. Let's get back at it on Newstalk Saga 960 AM. It's the Richard Serra Show. A few minutes remain with Colin Craig, president of secondstreet.org, think tank, and uh, they've just uh, issued a, uh, a report from data gathered from Ontario Health. The number of patients who died while waiting for surgery in Ontario in 2021-22, 1,417. That's up uh, uh, over 300. Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African-Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? President Biden's administration is making major decisions, and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval, and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African-Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African-Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy. Curiosity Stream is the streaming service for people who want to know more. And now check out Curiosity's new series, Queens of Ancient Egypt. When pharaohs held the throne, their wives held the power. We see her taking precedence over the pharaoh, an absolute mastermind. All hail the queens. This is unprecedented. Watch Queens of Ancient Egypt now on Curiosity Stream with monthly, annual, and bundled plans. Find the one that works for you at curiositystream.com. Individuals from last year and uh, 500 from uh, the year before. So it's, it's continuing to grow. Now, Colin, is this, how much of this do you think can be attributed to the backlog from, from COVID when, uh, you know, doctors were not seeing patients and hospitals were, of course, you know, inundated with, with COVID cases and so forth? Or, and how much of it is just uh, a, a trend that has been there, maybe it was exacerbated by COVID? Uh, it's definitely the latter. I'm glad you, you asked about that because that's important for everyone to under, understand is that this was a growing problem before COVID hit. And uh, I think what the pandemic did is it made things worse because governments postponed thousands of uh, surgeries and diagnostic scans across the country. Uh, so that would contribute to it. But this was a growing problem before COVID. You know, the reality, Richard, is that our healthcare system has been in crisis for years, even before COVID came along. All COVID did was make a, a bad situation worse. But, you know, it's, it's too often in this country that patients are being told that they're going to have to wait a year, two years for surgery or to see specialists. Like, it is, uh, it is it needed a shakeup for a long, long time. And, uh, you know, hopefully COVID is finally drawing more people to that reality. Pouring more and more money at the system, it just hasn't worked for decades now. Government spending has exploded, and yet we continue to talk about the same problems 
healthcare reform is what we need if we want to improve outcomes for patients. Well, yeah, to that point, uh, as you mentioned, healthcare spending under uh, uh, Premier Ford in the last four years. So since he took office in 2018, healthcare spending has gone from 61.3 billion to 75.2 billion. That's 13.9 billion dollars. That's a 22.7 percent increase. Um, so obviously, as you say, throwing money not not uh, doing the trick. So I mean, people want three things from their healthcare. They want timely access. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you know, there was that. Uh, so, uh, that uh, story of that individual who uh, was in a, a biking accident. He was uh, 70, I think 75 years old. He broke his leg. He ended up in a, in a small little room off of uh, the uh, ER in the hospital, waited for something like four days before wow. he actually had his leg repaired. Uh, I mean, we hear anecdotally, we hear these stories all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we want timely access when it's needed. We want quality care and we don't want to have to, you know, Pay, pay with our credit card. Um, can we have all three? Yes, for sure. Yeah. Countries around the world do this. There are countless developed countries that do exactly what you're talking about. Um, and they do it much better than Canada. And, and one of the key differences between them and us is that they have those strong public systems, but they also allow patients a choice. If you don't want to use the public system, you can go to a private clinic. And you can pay out of pocket. And then what that does is some people do decide to do that. And it takes pressure off of the public healthcare system. You know, I think of it as being, Richard, like you're in a grocery store and there's one checkout line and it's really long. And then suddenly they open up a second checkout line and a bunch of people go over to it and then everyone else gets to move up. It's, it's that kind of a, an arrangement. But uh, like I say, keeping that public component like Canada has uh, Australia, Sweden, Norway, there's lots of countries around the world where they maintain that universal component that Canadians love, uh, but they also allow patients to have more choice. Well, I don't know. Are we at that inflection point yet when people finally say, okay, okay, no mas, you know, we, we can't continue along with this, you know, one provider and one payer, any, this system anymore. It's, it's just a pipe dream. Are we at that inflection point? Uh, Yes. And I would argue we've been there for many years. Uh, The public has been ahead of politicians when it comes to this idea of allowing people to pay out of pocket at private clinics if they don't want to wait for the public system. Uh, A majority of Canadians have supported that for a long time now. Uh, The problem is that we haven't had politicians being willing to move forward with reform. Too often the healthcare debate in this country gets locked into this idea of it's either Canada's model or the U.S., which is uh, just a, a very poor discussion to have. Our system is not uh, is not doing well. Canadians do not like the American system. So why on earth are we talking about those two? We should be looking at, like I say, Australia, Norway, Sweden. There's lots of developed countries around the world that can do this. So it's a matter of, I think, our politicians catching up to where the public is at because the majority of Canadians do support and understand that having more choice, uh, like I say, could take a lot of pressure off of the public health care system. Colin Craig is president of secondstreet.org, secondstreet.org, and you can read the uh, the report there. Colin, great job. Thank you so much for this. Thanks a lot, Richard. All right. Bye for now. When we come back, the survivalist will talk about something called a check-in service. Are you okay? We'll come back with uh, Stefan Verstappen next on The Richard Serrett Show. You're listening to The Richard Serrett Show on Newstalk Saga, 960 AM. The 
heard when the lights go out for good. Stefan Verstappen is our emergency preparedness expert, the author of The Art of Urban Survival. Check out the websites chinastrategies.com and formingcommunities.com. Stefan, welcome back. Did you have a good weekend, buddy? Yeah, I had a great weekend, uh, Richard. Um, I'm very proud of the community here. At the last meeting, it came to our attention that one of the members, she had a medical emergency and she wasn't feeling too well. So um, we had a bunch of people volunteer to go there once a day and bring her a meal so she didn't have to cook. So my friend Dixie and I, we drove over to her compound on Sunday and uh, I prepared my world famous Papa Stefano's Pasta Salad Supremo. Oh, Yes, yeah. every, every bite is 2,000 calories. I mean, <laughs> it's just, you get fat on this stuff. And um, and beautiful family, okay? They live on 10 acres, completely off-grid. Solar panels, wind energy, dozens of chickens, and a garden. Oh, my God. Uh, huge gardens. They grow everything there. And so it was a joy to see it. it. You know, Richard, it's really a joy to see, like, a happy, healthy family, completely self-reliant, completely separate from the whole system. And um, so I'm glad that our community does things like that. Right. Almost like a, um, a Meals on Wheels kind of a program. But this is kind of you've you've taken this upon yourselves within your own smaller community. Yes. And Meals on Wheels is in my book on how to form communities, because it's another good way to form a community. You know, it's like we talk about, you know, survivalism. And yes, ideally, I wish everybody could be part of a survivalist community. Everybody get off grid. Everybody look after each other. But the fact is, it's very hard to form those kind of communities. But I always tell people, form some kind of community. Do something for other people. Become involved. And so some this community that, that I'm in part of now, very nice. And so Listen, somebody wasn't feeling good and um, they couldn't look after themselves. And so the people of the community volunteered. It just came together. We didn't have it set up in advance or anything. Just raise your hand if you can be there Monday. Okay, who can go there on Tuesday? Who can go there on Sunday? So I went there on Sunday with my good friend Dixie and uh, had a great time. And you know what? You feel good doing things for other people. Maybe it's just me. No, it's it's not just you. It's so important because... Many of these things that we used to take, you know, our ancestors took upon themselves to go and check the neighbor two miles down the road because there was nobody, you know, that was your closest neighbor two miles down the road. And, and you right. knew that they were a little elderly. Uh, and uh, so you would go and we farmed all of these, no pun intended, these what once were once sort of um, neighborly uh, communal responsibilities. We farmed those out to the government. And so now if you want to, you know, you do a wellness check, you call the police. Could you go check on my, uh, uh, you know, my cousin? Uh, we haven't heard from him in three weeks. Uh, and so the police will go and, and if necessary, you know, they'll, they'll, um, they have ways they can open the, open, open the lock, unlock the door and, and go in and make sure that everyone's okay. But we used to do those things on our own. Absolutely. Our, our ancestors used to do that. And you know who else used to do that on their own? The churches. I don't know what church modern churches do nowadays, but if uh, if you're part of a congregation, certainly bring it up. Start to do things like that for each for your fellow congregationalists. 
All right. So th- this brings us to our subject which today, which is uh, you call it a check in service, which is kind of like a wellness check that the police do, I guess. But we do this as a community now. Tell me more. Okay, so we've talked about forming all kinds of communities, and some of these communities are a little bit tricky to form, like a food co-op. That's going to be tricky to form because you have to source the food and you have to, you know, take the orders and handle the cash and deliver the produce. This is the simplest and easiest community to form. It takes nothing. It costs nothing. You You hardly have to do anything other than pick up the phone. But... As simple and easy as it is, do not underestimate the value that this kind of a community will bring to the people that are part of it. So in a nutshell, a check-in community is whereby people sign up, right? You can put it, put something up on Facebook. You can put an ad in the local uh, trade magazine or something like that. Anybody that would like to be part of this community, we will call you once a day just to see how you're doing that's all it is and what you do is you set up what's known as a telephone tree so uh, let's say we get 50 people sign up now i personally cannot call 50 people every day but what happens is i call five people and they call five people and they call five people so that's called a telephone tree so i only have to call five people in a day and then that spreads out until everybody within that community gets a phone call and all it is is a phone call to say richard how are you doing today everything okay how are you feeling how's your health are you on medication did you take your medicine um tell me about your day five minutes spend five minutes now as simple and easy as that sounds the benefits are humongous and All right, we're going to take a quick time out here, Stefan. We'll come back and continue to discuss this check-in service. Are you okay? Stefan Verstappen, emergency preparedness expert, author of The Art of Urban Survival. More of our conversation in three minutes. Don't go away. Back to the conversation on The Richard Serrett Show. News Talk, Saga, 960 AM. Welcome back. It's called a check-in service. And... When you form a community, uh, you uh, you basically check in a, f- a simple phone call once a day, a five minute phone call. Your neighbor, or maybe someone who lives around the corner, or even across town, depending on how your community is configured, just to make sure you know, particularly the elderly or the disabled, make sure everything is okay. Not difficult to do. Stefan Verstappen is our emergency preparedness expert, author of The Art of Urban Survival, ChinaStrategies.com, FormingCommunities.com. Um, do you prioritize, uh, like, as I say, let's say the elderly or, or people with disabilities, would they be in the, the, you know, the priority in terms of these check-in, these check-in calls every day? Absolutely. It's essential for uh, the elderly and people that are uh, house-ridden because, you know, we live in a society now where people are so alienated and so isolated. And I know lots of seniors that live alone. They have an apartment. They li- Nobody comes to visit them. Uh, you know, they go out once a week to do their grocery shopping. And then for the rest of the time, they're pretty much stuck at home and nobody checks in on them. Now, there is a trend in Japan that's called the lonely deaths. And this is a trend that I'm sure is happening here now. And what that trend means is that there are many people that are retired they're isolated they have no family they live at home and they die now what happens is 
nobody finds their body. Nobody notices that they're dead. The only time they find the body is when the smell gets so bad that finally the landlord or the neighbors send some police over and then they find out the guy died two months ago or the woman died two months ago. What a tragedy. Nobody cares about you, even if you live or if you die. And to prevent that, this is what the check-in club is meant to do, especially for seniors, but not just for seniors and and those that are uh, uh, housebound, it's for everybody now. Even young people need this. Young people don't have community. They don't have, you know, really close friends. I think they did a study not too long ago um, where they asked people, uh, you know, how many really close friends do you have? And I think when they did the study the first time 30 years ago, most people said they had five close friends. Now they say they have no close friends, even young people. This is what the society has become alienated, isolated, everybody on their own, no friends, no family. And this leads to suicide. But even worse than that, it leads to numerous health problems. There was a book published not too long ago, I think about 10 years ago, called The Blue Zone. And it was written by a doctor who had traveled all over the world to different places where people typically live to be 100 and plus years old, uh, like Sardinia and Okinawa and Costa Rica. And they went there to discover the secret to longevity. And they thought maybe it's something in the food that they ate, something in the water, maybe the wine they drank. What was it? And they experimented and they tested everything they could find. And they couldn't find a common denominator to why these communities and the people in these communities lived so long. But you know what the common denominator was? Human contact. Human contact. That's right, Richard. You are so bright. Yeah. Well, not so bad. And then later on, other studies came along that showed that even something as simple as this check-in club, somebody calls you once a day for five minutes to say, hey, how's it going? How are you doing? How are you feeling today? That will reduce depression and heart disease and diabetes and even arthritis is reduced simply by having people take some kind of an interest in you. So that's what the check-in club is. It's to make sure that, you know, your community, and of course, what you're doing is you are forming a community that can help you in times when things get really tough. But even now, it will help you to live longer. It provides so many benefits. And all it is, is a five-minute phone call. Now, one last thing. Remember about two and a half years ago, three years ago, there was the big purge on YouTube and all the truth tellers and the truth sayers and the alternative media, the alt-right, whatever you want to call it, they all got taken down. Right. Happening still. Still happening. But there was this big purge. They almost all went in the same day and Patreon cut them off and Twitter cut them off and everybody cut. Now, I had a lot of friends in that community and suddenly I don't see them anymore. What happened to them? Right. Right. Indeed. And uh, I couldn't find out because you know what? I hadn't thought about this yet. That's why you need this check-in club. We need to exchange phone numbers and email addresses amongst members of, of, you know, the people that are getting ready for this, the people that are fighting against the new world order. We need to stay in touch with each other because how do I know if suddenly Richard's kicked off the air at 9.60 a.m. and I don't see him on YouTube and I don't see him on, on Twitter. On, what happened to Richard? 
Did he get picked up by Caligula Castro? <laughs> Caligula Castro. I love it. I love yeah. it too because so many, so many of us now are acquaintances, our our colleagues, our members of our community, if you will. Uh, they, they don't even live in the same province, maybe, but we only know them through social media. That's our only con- contact. So if that social media connection is severed, it's almost like we're we're cut off. Like they've they're disappeared. They've disappeared. <laughs> Yeah. So if we had it like a now for this, you know, check in club, it could be just a phone call once a month or once a week. At least I'd have your contact information so that I know if Richard is suddenly disappears from all social media, what happened to him? Is he in a gulag somewhere in the Yukon or is he simply kicked off and, and banned from all social? How would I know? And I want to know, because if you start disappearing and the people around us start disappearing, that means it's only a matter of time before somebody comes and knocks at my door at three o'clock in the morning. So I want to be ready. So the check in club is a great idea to, for normal, everyday people to to you know, support each other and to show that they care and to prevent suicides and depression and all kinds of autoimmune diseases that come from being alone and isolated, but also from a practical survivalist point of view. I want to know if all our colleagues start disappearing, what happened to them? And I won't know what happened to them unless I had already set up monthly, weekly calling club. How are you doing? Even if it's email for now, And then we go to a phone call if I can't get a hold of you by email so that we know and we can be ready for when the door, somebody comes knocking at our door. Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African-Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? President Biden's administration is making major decisions and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African-Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African-Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy. Curiosity Stream is the streaming service for people who want to know more. And now check out Curiosity's new series, The Real Wild West. Rolling Stone magazine says it's the history of the West they usually don't teach you. The mythology of the West left out a lot of the people. People said they'd never seen a black cowboy. This is the history book, but did you know about these other facts? Watch The Real Wild West now on Curiosity Stream. With monthly, annual, and bundled plans, find the one that works for you at curiositystream.com. This is your uh, this is your check in service call to me once a week. There you go. Yeah, I appreciate it, Stefan. Thank you so much. You're welcome, Richard. I'm okay. Are you okay? I'm doing really good. 
Okay, there we go. Until next week, Stefan Verstappen, emergency preparedness expert, author of The Art of Urban Survival, ChinaStrategies.com, FormingCommunities.com. All right, hour two awaits. Uh, Coming up next, we're going to check in with Adam Zivo, National Post columnist. He's a good one. Terrific writer, very thoughtful individual. And, you know, in the the wake of this horrible attack on Selman Rushdie, uh, where he was uh, attacked by a knife-wielding... uh, extreme uh, extremists, an Islamic uh, extremist. Uh, you know that fatwa has been um, chasing Salman Rushdie around for over thirty years, and it finally caught up with him. But thank God, it looks like he's on the road to recovery. And now we have, of course, the Prime Minister, say, you know, praising Salman Rushdie and talking about about freedom of expression. Uh, excuse me, that kind of rings hollow uh, when you think of uh, the Prime Minister really as being at the forefront of cancel culture, and uh, you know this uh, this new bill. Uh, that's before the House of Commons trying to clamp down on freedom of expression. So, you know, save your uh, your platitudes. Uh, we'll talk about that with uh, Adam Zevo Coming up next, Hour 2 of The Richard Serrett Show. Don't go away. The views expressed in the following program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of Saga 960 AM or its management. Seeking truth and justice in a battleground of deception and corruption. This is The Richard Serrett Show. I want all of you to get up out of your chairs. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell, I'm as bad as hell and I'm not going to take this anymore! We must not allow ourselves to be intimidated. Our task is not only to win the battle, but to win the war. Feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. Take a look at this country through her eyes if you really want to see something. You'll see the whole parade of what man's carved out for himself after centuries of fighting. You're out of order! You're out of order! The whole trial is out of order! You have meddled with the primal forces of nature! Welcome to Hour 2, and if you missed Hour 1, you missed a lot, but don't despair. Still, plenty of great programming coming your way. Art Moore from WND will be here towards the tail end of the program. A number of big uh, items in the news. Uh, President Trump now claiming that the FBI seized three of his passports during the uh, raid on Mar-a-Lago a week ago. So we'll uh, get Art's take on that, as well as um, a, a UN report citing that the murder rate in major U.S. cities is now higher than Ukraine's civilian death rate. That's rather disturbing. We'll also check in with uh, Jonathan Bradley, contributor to the National Post, but also the Western Standard. And it was an exclusive to the Western Standard, uh, re- a leaked recording uh, conversation from a TD diversity trainer, basically telling employees not to vote for conservatives. And we'll also talk to Jonathan uh, about Denmark banning COVID vaccines for uh, children and teens younger than 18. Right now, um, it looks like Selman Rushdie is uh, on a a long road to recovery, surviving a, um, a horrible knife attack while giving a lecture in uh, New York State. 
And again, we don't know the uh, the motive yet, but the uh, assailant appears to have had some connection, at least to um, Islamic extremists. You know, there's been this fatwa that's been following Salman Rushdie around for about 34 years, and I guess it finally caught up with him. Of course, he released uh, the book Satanic Verses in the late 80s, and um, Iran quickly issued a fatwa, basically a death warrant. And he was in hiding for about 10 years under uh, police protection. But a number of uh, people around Rushdie, people that were translating the book and so forth, and, and publicists were attacked and some were killed. And now we have, of course, um, the prime minister lauding Selman Rushdie, but for Adam Zivo, it, uh, this praise kind of rings hollow. And he's here to explain why. Adam Zivo, National Post columnist. Adam, how are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me back. Uh, so explain, when you say that this rings hollow, what do you mean? Well, I, I think the thing is that Salman Rushdie, you know, primarily advocated for free expression. And he was fairly staunch on those principles. And many of the people who laud him today, uh, you know, don't really uh, support those principles that he represents. And so, you know, they may feel horrified at the violence that he's faced and, you know, they may want to say something about it. But what does it really matter if they don't actually stand for these principles that he represents? Right. So the satanic verses caused some controversy in certain communities because uh, some of the, the references were seen as blasphemous to to Islam. Uh, and um, and as you point out, now we have um, a whole segment of society running around saying that uh, that words can be violent. Uh, so I guess, you know, these are the same people. On the one hand, they are they're praising Salman Rushdie. But on the other hand, they would have been condemning, you know, if they were if they were paying attention back in 1988 when the satanic verses were released, they would have been perhaps condemning him for for his so-called blasphemous statements, saying that he was inciting violence. Well, I mean, you know, I think that the intellectual landscape in North America has changed a lot over the past 30 years. And what I mentioned in my article is a comparison between the response to Rushdie's book in 1988 and the Charlie Hebdo attacks in uh, 2015. So back in 1988, when there was this big fear about the Satanic Verses, uh, the North American literati were pretty... Uh, united in supporting Rushdie and supporting the rights of transgressive authors to write material that some may find offensive. And, you know, you even had Susan Sontag, who's like a very well-known, like far left philosopher slash thinker uh, rallying in support of Rushdie and, and guilting authors into, uh, (laughs) into publicly supporting him as well. So then fast forward, you know, to 2015, and you have a totally different approach to potentially um, offensive speech or ideas. You know, Charlie Hebdo was a satirical newspaper, uh, which was pretty aggressive in criticizing organized religions of all kinds. And, 
what happened is that they published some caricatures of the Prophet Muhammad, and that caused massive offense to some Muslim communities. And consequently, in 2015, two jihadists came in and shot up the offices, uh, killing 11 people and injuring 12 more. Now, in response, the North American chapter, the American chapter of Penn, which is a literary organization, uh, gave a freedom of expression award to Charlie Hebdo because, you know, they paid the price for being transgressive. And unfortunately, over 200 authors, you know, many well-known ones signed a public letter condemning the award, which was awful. Uh, And the thing is that they didn't even believe that Charlie Hebdo was, you know, being Islamophobic. They they recognized the fact that Charlie Hebdo's uh, attacks on organized religion were equal opportunity, that they lampooned Christianity just as much as they lampooned Islam. Uh, But from their perspective, because Muslims are a disadvantaged uh, minority within France, it's uh, harmful to criticize them, even if one criticizes them equally amongst others, and therefore it'd be bad to celebrate Charlie Hebdo. And so what I saw from that, you know, was people who didn't have the courage to stand up for free expression, even in a case of free expression that they themselves recognized was not particularly offensive. Um, and, and, And I found that shift astounding. And I think it's really telling to see the change in responses from 1988 to 2015 and also to see the rise increasing rise in sort of censorious attitudes that's happened the past seven years as well. Right. I mean, had the attack on Salman Rushdie had taken place, let's say, a short time after the release of Satanic Verses, let's say in the early 90s, um, you think, I mean, and you look at the, the reaction, I mean, there was obviously there was some outrage, uh, justifiably so, uh, to what happened to him. Uh, but I, I don't think... I think it's somewhat mooted and, and, and muted rather in, in, and uh, in comparison to what it might've been had it happened 30 years ago. Would you agree? I mean, you know, I can't speculate on a hypothetical situation and I wasn't even alive at the time, but I think that obviously the culture there was much more open to free expression than it, you know, is now. I mean, I'm, I'm only 30 years old, but in my adult life, I've also, you know, I've witnessed, you know, a coming of age, growing hostility to free expression. You know, I remember the norms that I saw in my teenage years are not the norms that I see today. And so I can't imagine how much more different it was in the late eighties. You, uh, you quoted Rushdie. I, I believe it was after the, the attack on Charlie Hebdo's offices in 2015, when those, uh, uh, when 11 people were killed and 12 injured, uh, after they published caricatures of uh, the prophet Muhammad and Rushdie said, you know, this is like we're we're entering the darkest period in, in history when Salman is, re, you know, recovered enough to, you know, to, to, to speak and make some public statements about what just happened to him. Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African-Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and overpolicing? President Biden's administration is making major decisions and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African-Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. 
Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African-Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy. What do you, again, it's speculation, but where do you think he is now in in his thinking about where we are in terms of this dark chapter of history? I mean, this this uh, this horrible, violent attack that has happened to him. And again, I don't think the outrage has been has been uh, sufficient in terms of, uh, you know, public outcry. I, I, I mean, so I'll be honest, I've been pleasantly surprised at the lack of apologies for this violence, you know. I was expecting a replay of Charlie Hebdo, and thankfully that hasn't happened yet. I mean, there have been a few voices on Twitter that have tried to say that, you know, Rushdie isn't a figure to be celebrated. Um, But Twitter is Twitter, and Twitter is full of crazies, and it's hard to take that seriously. I mean, on the whole, I think the response has been pretty strongly in support of him. You know, you look at global leaders, uh, Biden, Macron, Johnson, all showing shock and disgust at this violence. So I, I would hope, you know, that Rushdie would be happy with that. But I don't think that the response to his particular case changes the fact that censorship is increasingly in vogue in the West. It's a disturbing trend, to be sure. Uh, Adam, always appreciate your time. Thank you. Terrific article. Thanks for having me. Adam Zivo, National Post columnist. All right, when we come back, Jonathan Bradley, another contributor to the National Post, also the Western Standard. We'll talk about Denmark banning the COVID vaccine for children under the age of 18 and the TD diversity trainer caught on tape telling an employee to not vote conservative. Back with more in a moment. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Richard Serrett Show on News Talk, Saga 960 AM. Danish government uh, announced that July 1st of this year would no longer be possible for children and adolescents under the age of 18 to get their first COVID vaccine shot. And then from September 1st, it would no longer be possible for children and adolescents under the age of 18 to receive their second shot. This was a government statement. Now, you contrast that with what's happening here in, uh, in Canada, babies now eligible to receive three rounds of Moderna's COVID vaccine. Even though COVID poses no greater threat to babies than the flu, and even Health Canada admits they don't have long-term safety data. Interesting contrast. Jonathan Bradley is a contributor to the Western Standards. He joins us now. Hey, Jonathan, how are you? Doing well, Richard. Um, you know, it was interesting that when this, this announcement uh was made and, and people were retweeting it on Twitter. They were being, you know, it was being uh, labeled as false and misinformation. Uh, I mean, this, this story is accurate, right? Denmark has basically told if you, uh, the people, if you're under 18, you can't get the, you can't get the COVID shot, right? Yes. The Danish government uh, barred children under 18 years old from taking COVID-19 vaccines because of the low risk they face from a virus. You can even look at uh, Canadian government data. And if you were to look at uh, all the, the hospitalizations and deaths, you'd find that it's a small fraction of hospitalizations and deaths are children under uh, 18 years old. I think there's only been a handful of children uh, in Canada who have died from COVID-19. A majority of them had underlying health conditions. 
Right. So, I mean, is the science different in Denmark than it is here in Canada? What's going on? That's a good question. I'm not too sure. Um, you were talking about uh, censorship as well. I'm not sure if you saw, but the Western Standard was suspended from Twitter for this story. Um, we tweeted the story out with uh, a caption. And there was another story we tweeted out the same day. And someone must have reported us. And we've been suspended from Twitter for one week. We're working on the appeal process at the moment, um, but they haven't got back to us yet. But our suspension should be up by Wednesday. So you're you're being um, you're in Twitter jail because you were reporting on what the da- Danish government, in fact, did. Yes, we quoted from a press release. Twitter didn't seem to like that. So they suspended us from Twitter for a week. Dear Lord. Yeah. All right. So just getting back to this idea, you know, that the, that um, this contrast where Denmark, they're saying no vaccines if you're younger than 18, with some rare, some exceptions. Yes. So if you are in what they consider the very high risk uh, category and if you have a note from a doctor, you will be permitted to get the vaccine if you're in this particular cohort. Otherwise, no, none. I mean, they're not just not recommending it. They're saying, no, you can't have it. It's, you know, the science says you shouldn't, you don't need it. You shouldn't have it. Um, and here in Canada, again, three, three Moderna doses. And they're still, you know, they're still pushing it. They're pushing it for, for, for babies. Um, yes. There's a public health professor in the United States named Marty McCary. He works at John Hopkins University. And he talked about how he personally doesn't recommend COVID-19 vaccines for anyone under 18, except if they have underlying health conditions such as asthma or they're immunocompromised, something like that. Um, I myself am fully vaccinated. I've had uh, two doses. I don't plan on getting boosted anytime soon. Um, majority of my family and majority of my friend group is vaccinated. Um, I believe it's a personal choice whether or not you do want to get vaccinated. Right, right. Uh, and then we had the um, uh, in Germany. Well, we have this data, too. In fact, uh, Dr. Kieran Moore, the chief medical officer of health in Ontario, uh, you know, mentioned this, that there is a, um, a one in 5000 chance of uh, young young people uh coming down with myocarditis or pericarditis if uh you know one in five thousand doses um and depending on the manufacturer and the dose uh, and the dose interval it could be as as high as one in 3200 i've even heard one in 2800 uh doses could result in myocarditis in young people yep, uh, i actually happen to have a friend who his dad uh unfortunately passed away from the covid19 vaccine uh, he suffered myocarditis uh, shortly after taking it, uh, had to be hospitalized and he ended up dying a few weeks later after it. Um, I've heard stories as well from people who have lost, uh, family members or friends to the vaccines. My dad was actually hospitalized after his first dose, um, with a, so- a sodium intake crash. Wow. Unbelievable. Um, and so when you get out of Twitter jail, are you going to, uh, are you going to repost the story on Twitter? <laughs> I don't think so. I mean, when we, when we received the notice that we were suspended for a week, uh, the whole newsroom was like, what the heck did you like put his caption, Jonathan? And then I was like, Oh, it was what the press release said, which was this. And like, we went back to the press release and looked at it and it was similar. I mean, obviously, you know, when you're, when you're writing an article, you paraphrase a little. Um, but yeah, we were, just, we were kind of stunned. We're like, we quoted from like a government source and they suspended us. Well, and this is important information for people to know, you know, what other jurisdictions are doing. Oh, of course. Uh, and in Denmark, it's true. The government is banning the vaccine for youth under 18. It's not, uh, it's not a hoax. 
uh, despite what Twitter tells you. It's it's the truth. Uh, the Danish government said many people have been vaccinated and infected with COVID-19 and immunity in Denmark remains high. Right. Jonathan, if you could hold on, I want to talk to you about another terrific story. This is a Western Standard exclusive. This is the uh, the TD diversity trainer that was caught on tape telling employees not to vote conservative. Would you be good to chat about that? Oh, of course. I'd love to talk about this. All right. Um, when we come story... back, we'll, we'll do it when we come back, Jonathan. Jonathan okay. Bradley, Western Standard. Stay with us. The Bull Session continues on The Richard Serrett Show. News Talk, Saga, 960 AM. I haven't really voted that much. I'm starting to try to and learn more about it. But from what I know, um, conservative conservative goes against a lot of um, what Indigenous peoples are trying to do um, because they advocate for pipelines. Um, they don't want Indigenous peoples to have a voice, etc. Whereas, like, let's say Liberal NDP, they're a little bit more about it, right? Um, probably the Green Party is huge, actually, because we're also very connected to the land. So I would say more of those areas are what to vote for versus like conservative because I, I've noticed a lot of what their intentions are, are kind of against um, indigenous I guess rights but that's just very minimal um, on the surface knowledge that I know about politics <laughs> so that is a TD diversity trainer a TD diversity trainer caught on tape telling an employee not to vote conservative this uh, is an exclusive story with Western Standard Western Standard uh, dot news and uh, please check it out and uh, support independent media Western News. Jonathan Bradley is with Western Standard and uh, Jonathan how did you uh, how did you get this leaked audio so a person who's close to me I'm not going to out the person uh, we were having a conversation on the phone uh, the day prior and uh, I was just asking him how work's going at TD and he's like oh dude he's like I had to sit through this idiotic diversity training today and he was like starting he was telling me a little bit about what was happening so I was like oh I'm like did you happen to record this he's like well funny enough I recorded a little snippet of it um to tell to play for my family and I said do you mind sending it to me and he ended up sending to me uh we verified it uh just based upon like the details he told me and we ran with the story and we published it Thursday Wow. So this, uh, do we know, I don't know how, you know, if you, if there's anything that uh, you, you can't tell me, you know, not to worry, but do we know where this particular, uh, branch is? Is it in Ontario, Alberta? It's in Ontario. It's in Ontario. Do we know the identity? You don't, obviously I'm not asking you to tell me, but do we know the identity of the t- TD diversity trainer in question? Well, one of them is, uh, her, she goes by the name Carol. And the other one, uh, there's no identity by it's, it was a brief snippet of the entire training session, which lasted, I think about an hour or so. Um, it's funny though, because when I reached out to TD for comment with this, uh, they didn't get back to me that day. And then it took them four days to give us a response. And they basically denied that there was this training session and that this was just two employees bantering with each other. Uh, even though my friend told me otherwise. Um, and according to your friend, this was part of a, a TD diversity training session. How many other people were in the room receiving instructions from this diversity trainer? Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African-Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? President Biden's administration is making major decisions and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African-Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. 
The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African-Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy. There were, he didn't specify. Okay, but it was more than just him and the, and the diversity trainer? Yes. Okay. Um, and... So again, in this in this snippet, we hear the diversity trainer suggesting that the conservatives they shouldn't vote. People shouldn't vote conservative because uh, there are agenda, I guess, runs contrary to indigenous people's interests and so forth. Um, are, are they being the employees being instructed that they're what to communicate this to their customers or what are they supposed to do with this information? I don't even know what they were supposed to do with this information. It's just ridiculous that they're making uh, comments like this. Funny enough, uh, after this story came out, there was a, a group called the Indigenous Resource Network that reached out to me. And uh, we actually have a story up on the site right now about it, uh, where they talked about how these comments that were made by this employee were misguided and how um, if you actually look at polling data, Indigenous people do support uh, resource development about uh the person who I spoke with told me that about 65% of indigenous people want oil and gas developments and about 70% want forestry, forestry projects. Right. So um, you mentioned the TD, it took them about four days to get back. They denied that there was any such training session and that this yes. was simply a conversation between employees. Uh, did you provide them with the tape or? Have yes, we gave, them a, we gave them a tape and they were, they got roasted on Twitter for the last, they've been roasted on Twitter for the last few days. Um, I happen to see some tweets where people were saying, I'm going to be canceling my TD bank account because of this, or I'm changing banks because of this, or I'm never going to use TD again. Interesting. Jonathan Bradley, contributor to the Western Standard. And again, this is an exclusive story to the Western Standard. Uh, basically, a TD diversity trainer caught on tape uh, telling employees in a diversity training session to not vote conservative. Unbelievable. Jonathan, great work. Thank you so much. I hope we'll speak again. Thank you. Have a great day. You too. All right. When we come back, Art Moore from WND. Big story. President Trump now claiming the FBI seized his passports during the raid on Mar-a-Lago a a week ago. And uh, we'll also uh, talk to him about a UN study showing the murder rate in major U.S. cities is now higher than Ukraine's civilian death rate. Art Moore, WND. That's next. Stay with us. Just having a little chin wag on the Richard Serrett Show. News Talk, Saga, 960 AM. Welcome back. Well, things are really heating up with respect to the FBI raid on President Trump's residence in Florida, Mar-a-Lago last week. Now, President Trump is reporting that his passports were stolen in that FBI raid. His passports stolen. Uh, If true, what does that mean? He, He can't leave the country? He's a prisoner in his own country? What the heck is going on here? Art Moore is an author at WND and co-author of the bestseller, See Something, Say Nothing. Hey, Art, how are you? Hey, doing fine. Thanks, Richard. Uh, So if true, would that be correct? He wouldn't be able to leave the country even as a former president? 
That's true. And that's usually uh, what is done to prevent what they call flight risk. And uh, it, it, it doesn't really make sense if the target is anything related to his presidency, presidential documents and what for. So it it is troubling. And uh, I don't think President Trump would state that if it if it weren't true. That's easily verifiable. Well, as a former president, I mean, how many passports? He said he had I think he said three passports were stolen. Three. Well, how many passports would a president have? He would have well, a diplomatic. He, he said one was expired. And and citizens of the U.S., I myself have had two passports at one time. You're allowed to. It's a, it's a kind of. Um, uh, you know, courtesy if for people that travel a, a lot so that you have one passport that's at a visa agency, you can use the other one. Right. So he would have as president, he would have, I'm guessing, a special diplomatic passport. That's right. There is there is a diplomatic passport, but I I assume that he doesn't have that anymore. Right. Um, and then you would then uh, the other one would just be the typical. The I guess you have a blue, a blue. That's your tourist uh, passport, right? You're the blue one. Right, right. The blue one is for any American citizen. Right. Uh, and then I think there's so there's a black one, which is the that's the, the diplomatic uh, passport. There's the blue and the tourist one. And, and um, there's a red one, I think, which is also for government travel. But he may not be eligible to carry that anymore. Um, is the FBI? What are they doing there? Are they, are they playing a, a game of chicken here? Are they trying to? Are they trying to instigate something or do you think they generally feel he's a flight risk? Well, it, it, it's it's hard to know. I, I, I don't know. I, you know, I just heard this news and that's the first thing that comes to mind is the flight risk. Uh, but you know, clearly all of this is taking place in a context and uh, you, you can't blame anybody for being skeptical. When you look at uh, obviously even directly related to President Trump, the what, what's turned out to be a hoax, the Russia collusion investigation, the manufactured uh, Whitmer kidnapping case, which was blamed on Trump. And we know that that was mostly carried out by FBI informants run by the Detroit FBI field office. And it just so happens that the guy that ran that bungled affair got promoted to the Washington field office, which is the one that did the raid and and by the way also the one that uh was involved with january 6th where we're finding out credible evidence that were there were all these informants but but just you know what we're talking about is all you know, the reasons why we should not trust the fbi there's the the burying of the hunter biden uh laptop case and we found out through whistleblowers uh what we would already suspect uh the misclassification of uh, domestic extremism cases. They, they want to create more domestic extremism cases, the profile being basically Trump supporters to pump up the Biden narrative. That's our biggest threat. The the targeting, this was about one year ago, um, A.G. Garland, uh, you know, targeting the basically, you know, the, the mama bears, the, the parents concerned about the curriculum in their schools. These are domestic terrorists. Um, on and on. There's all kinds of reasons to not trust the FBI. We don't have the full picture here, but uh, it, it sure looks like a, a very different way of handling a case like this than Hillary Clinton, for example. Uh, you, you had, you know, she for one thing, she should not have had a private email system. Why did she have that? There's a lot of evidence that she just didn't want these records to be uh 
summoned. They were summoned for the Benghazi case that Congress was investigating. And there's the 33,000 emails that she decided to delete on her own um, uh, decision that, oh, this is personal stuff. It was, you know, our our daughter's wedding. It was, you know, 33,000. And we decided, and my lawyers decided whether or not it was personal or relevant. And we just, you know, erased them. And then we use this program to completely wipe the hard drive and then we smashed the the blackberries the you know the the smartphones on and on i mean i think a lot of people know this story but uh then jim's jim comey the fbi director at the time he goes before the nation to try to explain why he's not he's not going to refer it to prosecution uh, after he lists the fact that there were a hundred uh, classified uh, emails and, and maybe you know ten or so were top secret, but he said, "Well, no, no reasonable you know prosecutor would prosecute this." And, and people people's jaws dropped. I mean, what, right. And then we have the Hunter Biden a laptop, uh, you know, a hard drive with with pretty compelling evidence that he and other members of the Biden family, I'm being kind and in, in, in being vague, uh, were involved in influence peddling. Uh, and, and yet, you know, uh, he's still riding on air force one to go on summer holidays with his pop. There's no, uh, there's nobody, you know, breaking down his door at two o'clock in the morning, um, you know, with a, with a, uh, with a warrant, uh, Art Moore is with us, WND and uh, co-author of See Something, Say Nothing. We'll take a quick time out. We'll talk a little bit more about that. And also, um, you know, what, what's what's coming next? Uh, Marco Rubio, Senator Marco Rubio had a rather chilling warning. We'll talk about that as well. Stay with us. More to come. Let's rejoin the conversation on The Richard Serrett Show on News Talk Saga 960 AM. Welcome back. Art Moore stays with us, author at WND. Please support independent media, WND.com, one of the the real pioneers in independent online news gathering and reporting. And um, if you want to really support them, uh, one way to do it, go to WND.com, subscribe to Whistleblower Magazine. It's a fantastic publication, and uh, uh, it helps them out. Uh, Art is also co-author of the bestseller, See Something, Say Nothing. We're talking about Donald Trump uh, today made the uh, the claim that uh, the FBI stole his passports or seized his passports during that raid on Mar-a-Lago last week. Um, the other interesting um angle to this story, and I, I believe you reported on, on this last week, Art, and that is the judge that signed off on this uh, this FBI uh, warrant uh, and his connections to Jeffrey Epstein. So, so yeah, first of all, um, he's a Clinton donor, I'm sorry, an Obama donor, but yes, uh, he um, was involved with um, a couple of the uh, People related to Epstein in the first case that took place about a dozen years ago. It was a state case in Florida, and and he was able to uh, get uh, immunity for uh, these these two clients. And uh, the, the bottom line is is you know it, it was it was a cover up. I mean, if that uh, case was investigated properly, uh, a lot of people would have been spared uh, this this man's horrible. Um, whatever you want to call it, his, his horrible scheme. 
Right, right. So we have the judge who, as a as a as a lawyer, was uh, representing some of Epstein's associates, and uh, and now he's the same judge. Now he's a judge, and he signs off on the uh, uh, the warrant to raid Mar-a-Lago uh, last week. So um, Senator Marco Rubio had some chilling things to say in in the wake of this raid on Mar-a-Lago. Can you give us a sense of what he what he said? Yes, it's really interesting because I think a lot of people know that he's the son of Cuban immigrants. And so he knows a lot about what it's like to live under tyranny, under Fidel Castro's tyrannical regime. And uh, furthermore, in Latin America, there's there's this pattern of uh, dictators of different political stripes and how they will target a political opponent and then go after all of the supporters of that opponent. And this is what Rubio is warning. He's saying, look, uh, they're going after Trump, but really what they're after ultimately, uh, you know, tr- people like Trump come and go. But it's 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 people like you, the more than 70 million people that voted for Trump. And uh, I I think that you know that, that's been clear in, in many ways in the way that DHS has described you know, who the threat is. We talked earlier about the parents uh, concerned uh, about what is in the curriculum of schools. But but prior to that, in the Obama administration, you know, they described um, the, one of the chief threats to our country as people that vote for uh, voted for Ron Paul. He was um, a libertarian candidate for president or, you know, people that that uh, believe that the Second Amendment uh, is sacrosanct or, you know, believers in, in God. And I mean, all of these uh, you know, put together, which you saw on January 6th as, as their profile of what they call insurrectionists, uh, you know, the million or so people that came there to support the president, to pray, to pray that the constitutional process would go forward. And uh, so Rubio is, is right. He's, he sees a, a pattern that is repeated throughout um uh, history and 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 the modern times and uh it's it's just it's it's really i i think it's difficult for us to comprehend in this country uh people growing up in this country there there's there's still many of them still just have not been able to wrap their their minds around this idea that our government is is targeting good upstanding law-abiding people is that what's behind joe biden giving the irs something like 80 billion dollars over the next eight years 10 billion a year to hire eighty-seven thousand new irs agents i i have i mean you have to you can't say for sure but you have to be uh, very very suspicious because of the fact that under Clinton and Obama, I, I know of many people who were targeted. They 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 got involved in successful political activism that was against the administration, and boom, they get audited for no good reason. And uh, I, I I think um, there's a lot of intimidation in that, and then sometimes it's just actual punishment that people undergo. All right. Uh, just a few minutes left, Art, but I wanted to talk to you about this um, U.N. report um, that um, the murder rate in the United States in, in, in major American cities is now higher than the Ukrainian recorded civilian death rate from the, uh, the Russian invasion. I mean, that's absolutely shocking. 
It, it, it is. And I think it's important to point out that it comes from the United Nations. It's not some you know right wingers who are trying to score some points. But uh, the, the fact is, is that we have had a problem for decades upon decades in, in these big cities. Uh, but it, it, it really was you know, ramped up after the death of George Floyd in police custody and uh, this whole defund the police movement. And then along with that, the George Soros um, plan to put these uh, like minded DAs in place in big cities. And, and these are DAs that simply follow this progressive philosophy of um, valuing the, the, the rights of, of uh, criminals more than the people that they're supposed to protect. Yeah, like cashless bail, for example. Um, so let's look at some of the numbers. The Ukrainian civilian death rate is, I mean, it's shockingly high, but it's it's 13.12 per 100,000 people. And, and keeping in mind, they're at war with Russia. There is an, an invading army in Ukraine, 13.12 uh, civilians killed per 100,000 people in Ukraine. What does it look like in some of the major U.S. cities? Yes. Yeah, so you have cities like St. Louis where it's 38 per 100,000. That's compared to 13 or, or Baltimore is 37. And I, I think, you know, well, Chicago, they it was still higher, still higher than, than Ukraine. Uh, and, and maybe people can quibble with you know how these stats are, are, are um, how they come about with them. But the, the, the thing is that that's really important to understand is that. In these these cities, uh, there's a a class of people that four decades ago were uh, put under these welfare programs with good intentions, but have just destroyed families, have just destroyed civil life. And uh, it's you you could say it's it's not far fetched to say it's a war zone in some of these places. I lived in suburban Chicago for a time, and I can tell you that. Between the suburbs and and what they call the loop downtown Chicago is this zone where you do not get off on the freeway to stop. You don't if you need gas, uh, you know, push your car into town. Don't stop. Don't get off the freeway. I know personally people who who did that because they they felt like they had to and and they got mugged. Um, it's people do not realize, uh, and, and I, I blame it on. Mostly the Democrats, but Republicans, too, who passed these uh, great society uh, welfare programs back in the 60s and then kept kept it going and have just destroyed families, destroyed civil society. And so that's what we're comparing to uh, an actual war, the Russian invasion that, that that obviously everybody's concerned about, rightfully so. Again, let me just give out these uh, these numbers. So the Ukrainian civilian death rate is 13.12 13, let's say 13 per 100,000 people and Ukraine again in the midst of a bloody war with uh, invading Russia. So 13 point, 13% per 100,000 people in Ukraine. And then you look at major cities like St. Louis, 38.2 murders per 100,000 people. Baltimore, 37 per 100,000. Absolutely uh, uh, horrific. Uh, Art, always appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Okay, my pleasure, Richard. Thanks. Art Moore, author at WND, co-author of See Something, Say Nothing. That's it for me. My thanks to Jody and uh, Jacob. I'll be back tomorrow to do it all over again, God willing. I'll speak with you at four. Don't be late. Until then, I remain unbowed, unbent, unbroken.
That's it. That's all. For more Richard Serrett Show, podcasts, blogs, and other stuff, go to saga960am.ca. Stop talking past each other and start talking with each other. We'll see you Tuesday afternoon at 4 on The Richard Serrett Show on News Talk, Saga 960 AM. Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? President Biden's administration is making major decisions, and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval, and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy.